Um, if you guys haven't heard, um, uh, Pastor Zeke's mom passed away um, uh, on Tuesday. And so he's been um, ministering to his family and setting up, uh, you know, making arrangements and those kinds of things and that stuff. So he's um, he will be uh, probably back next week. You know, the funeral, I think, is a week from this coming Tuesday. And so um, he's going to, there's going to be a lot of family coming in and stuff. And so um, be praying for him. You know, they have a very large family. So, um, you know, and he's, he's ministering to everybody. You know how he is. Nobody falls through the cracks with him. He takes care of everyone. And so he's going to go and uh, uh, kind of get away a little bit this weekend so that he can kind of recoup and and uh, of course, when it's a situation like this, um, and you are the guy, and you take care of everything and stuff, um, when exactly he gets to mourn himself can be a difficult thing because he's taking care of everybody else right now. And so pray for him and strength for him and Blanca and, uh, and for Daniel and Lethe also, as that is um, Daniel's grandmother. And, and uh, he got to stay with her for a while a few years back. And so he they really got a pretty close and tight relationship and so he's also there and available you know as needed also so be praying for their family as this is a most difficult time and uh, if you've gone through that yourself then you understand how difficult it is you know she was ill and you um, are always preparing for that to happen but unfortunately when it does it's um, you're just all of a sudden you're in it and um, it doesn't seem like the however much preparation you've made mentally or whatever you've done still isn't enough and so everything kind of comes flooding back and so he's in that place so pray for him for strength as he's taking care of everybody else and I know that we know that God's taking care of him and so I'll be praying for him and his family um, well, let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we just want to uh, lift up uh, Pastor Zeke right now and his family and Pastor Daniel as they minister to their family, Lord, and we just pray your anointing on them and that you give them rest and peace, Father, and the sweet memories that are there that they can cling to and to know that uh, she's with you now, and so uh, they can have rest and peace in that, and that and how much you love them and you loved her and we just pray that you'll move throughout the family and minister to hearts there. So strengthen them, Lord, and, and, and anoint them and move there and, and uh, keep them close to you. And we just pray they can feel your presence the whole way and that you'll be glorified in all this. We ask that you'll just have your anointing on the study tonight and, and on your word and that you'll minister to our hearts and uh, that you'll be glorified. So, Father, we place this time into your hands and that you'll have your way. And, we know that your presence is here from the sweet worship we've had, and so now we just want to sit at your feet and grow in you, Lord, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, before I get started here, I, I saw an article in, um, it was on Fox News, and yeah, I look at Fox News, you know, there's certain words that people say for those that watch Fox News, I'm not going to say what those words are, but then again, I... You know, I'm not supposed to be informed, or am I informed? I don't know. You know, I don't think I get anything out of CNN, so I guess I am whatever they call me. But anyways, 
I just read this story, and it was just a little one. It was a little article about these four people. They were Bible translators in the Middle East. They won't say where they are, and they were killed by extremists. And um, these guys busted in the door. They killed them, and they shot two of them, and then two of them were beat to death with the empty guns because they were protecting the body of this fifth translator. They were from the organization Wycliffe, which are Bible translators, and they, from this article, there are hundreds of these offices all over the world, and they believe that they need to go to certain places where they're going to do translation into the language of where it is that they that the situations are going on, they go to these places and they set up offices and start their translations and that kind of stuff. And they believe that, that from the hard drives and stuff that they've recovered, from, they destroyed the office, but from the hard drives and stuff, they, can, they think they can get the information that these guys had translated and stuff on and, and they can get, extract out that information so that they can carry on the work. They are going to continue to do it. And, and the, the guy that was like heads up Wycliffe in, in this, these groups is going, the gospel is going to go out. We're not going to stop. So sometimes we get to thinking like you watch the news or you read things and you think that you're by yourself. And there are guys out there, there's people out there who are hidden away and they are translating the word into these languages and giving it out and giving it out. And, and they are in constant danger. And they're just doing it because they love God so much. And so, you know, keep it in your head that God's moving all the time. He never rests. He never stops. And his, his word is always going to go forth. And so it, it was just... At the, it, it saddened me to see that, but at the same time, it was such a blessing to know how he moves. And, and the information that these people had done, you know, that they had gotten forth, they're able to get it back and to continue the work. And people are stepping up and moving out there to do this. And so it's just amazing. And they, they can't even tell you where they are, because if they do, then those, they will be attacked. So... You know, and, and um, you know, we have, there's missionaries that we support that's the same way. We can't say, you know, we can't put on Facebook or on emails and stuff where they are, because if you do, then uh, they can be harmed. And so we, you have to be, we have to be careful how, you know, things are communicated or whatever. And so it was just, it was such a blessing. It was a sad thing, but at the same time, um, it just struck me how God, continues to move no matter what and his word goes forth and so anytime you think man you know am i am i like the only person that thinks logically anymore you know it's, it's like is the whole world insane well yeah they are because they don't know christ but uh, there's a lot of people out there trying to make sure that they come to know him and they're not going to stop and uh, they're just going to keep on going so be praying for those guys um Excuse me, Wycliffe Bible Translators. An amazing group. An amazing group. Well, <clears throat> 2 Samuel chapter 15. You know, um, we, <clears throat> this, this story here really started in chapter 11. And it goes all the way through to like um, chapter 20. And it's just a continuous story. It's from when David fell all the way till his exile, which is what we're going to look at right now today, and then this evening, and then his return, 
and, and as he reestablishes things at the, uh, at the end in, in chapter 20. Now, if you, you know, are waiting, you know, for each, you know, piece of the story to fall into place, and I just ruined it for you, I apologize, but, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it's kind of like you're sitting across the table or your kitchen table from a guy who's telling you this story, and, and it's an amazing, wonderful story. And every time he takes a breath, you blam in a chapter number or something so you can get it into chunks so that you can read through it and, and just uh, and mull it over and understand it. Well, Pastor Zeke went through Passion Week last week, and he had started with Palm Sunday. And then on Thursday, he did the Upper Room and everything and went through the, an amazing, I don't know, what was it, five chapters or some kind of thing It was <clears throat> it was wild, and there was some speculation that um, he might not be here last Thursday, and Daniel and I were freaking out because we we're going to have to figure out how to go through five chapters. He had it down, and he did a fabulous job, but we were like going, how are you going to do that? There's like 200 Sunday services in this, you know? So anyways, he did wonderful as usual, and, and, and he brought us, you know, to that time and the place of, of Easter Sunday, and that was a wonderful service. But um, the week before that, he had gone through uh, chapter 15. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of go back through some of chapter 15 and look at the highlights of that so we can catch up with chapter 16. Because if I start jamming and you haven't been here or you're, you're not caught up to that, then it's not going to make a whole lot of sense as to why they're out in the middle of nowhere wandering around. And so we just want to kind of catch it up a little bit and see where, um, <clears throat> where it happens. So in, verse, uh, in chapter 15, Absalom's treason, his, um, his son had been out, you know, uh, running amok and kind of he had been uh, separated from his dad. They kind of had a little thing going on where they kind of made up and stuff, which is his dad is King David, Absalom is David's son. Well, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 12, um, Absalom starts um, uh, his attempt to take over the kingdom, and he starts setting things up. He's, he's a pretty shrewd individual, and so he starts to build upon things here. In verse 6, it says that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So he was establishing you know, a control and a hold, and as he was, he was um, you know, gaining um, you know, uh, people to to, uh, you know, back him up and that sort of thing. In verse 7, it says then that he went and asked the king for permission to go to Hebron. Well, Hebron was where uh, King David, when he first became king, that was when he was, you know, there was only Judah was backing him up. That's where he set up his headquarters and the capital of, of that. And then as the whole nation gathered around him, and he became king over all 12 tribes then they moved over to Jerusalem, and that's where the center of their, um, you know, nation and their um, worship and things was in Jerusalem. And so, uh, but he wanted to go to Hebron, and, and uh, so the king tells him to go in peace, go for it, you know. And so he goes there and established, begins to really establish himself in Hebron. And in that area, in, in that time, it's when he calls on Ahithophel, which is uh, one of, King David's um, top counselors. He's one of his most, you know, uh, the one of the guys that tells him what's going on and how things are going and that sort of thing. And so he, he's, he's getting this guy on his side and we know the conspiracy starts to grow strong and we know why because Ahithophel is, 
is uh, Bathsheba's grandfather, and we know this. And so, uh, and Bathsheba was the one that King David killed her husband, and, and, and then they had a baby, and he tried all this kind of stuff to, to cover up their situation and stuff. So um, Ahithophel was kind of watching this whole thing go on, became a confidant of King David's, and now um, his, his uh, you know, the things that he has set up and wants to do is starting to fall into place. And so his agenda is coming around. And so now he's going to take advantage of it. Um, so <clears throat> as we turn and get over to like chapter or verse 13, now King David then escapes um, from Jerusalem. And, uh, and so through 13 through 37 is him getting out. In verse 13, it says, the hearts of the men of Israel were with Absalom, which is significant because that would be the the group that that had. The, there's always been a separation in here. When we see that in the the after Solomon, the the nation breaks up into two pieces, and they and it's the it's Israel and and Judah, and uh, it seems that Judah is sticking with David here because that's of his tribe. But the other group is uh, the other eleven tribes are splitting off. And they're moving away from him. And so, but his group, his clan or his tribe is staying close to him. And so he flees with all of his servants and everything. And he, he, he makes haste. He gets out fast uh, because uh, uh, they're going to eventually come. And he's afraid that they're going to hit the city with the edge of the sword, it says. And so what he's doing is he's protecting Jerusalem from a war. Because Absalom is going to come with an army and it's going to be big. And then he's going to have to battle and fight and people are going to die. So what he's doing is he's trying to get out of town to avoid any kind of destruction of the city. And then maybe through some kind of means then he can come back in. Things can settle out and people won't get killed. It, he's not, you know, uh, you know, want to, to just trick himself into thinking everything's going to be cool and it's all going to come together. He's trying to get out of town to try to avoid as much bloodshed as possible. And so he flees with all of his servants and that sort of stuff. But he left ten concubines to keep the house. And so it's kind of obvious that he figures he's coming back because or those ladies are going to be there taking care of business. And so when he gets back, the fires will be hot and everything, and they can make breakfast and stuff. And so they can kind of make sure everything's going and everything is cool there. And, uh, and so uh, <clears throat> he leaves these uh, women there to take care of things. But a large group went with him. And then uh, the Ark of the Covenant, they, uh, the priests picked up the Ark of the Covenant and they started hauling it out. And uh, so he tells Zadok, the priest, he says, no, no, no. He goes, the ark needs to stay. You've got to take it back. As to whether God's going to let me come back or not, we're going to leave that into his hands. And now we see the faith starting to kick in. We really see him starting to step up and we start to see him turning things over to God. Because he's been kind of in and out here. But in this group of scripture here in, ver in chapter 16, we see him step up as a king and as a mature king. And it's pretty cool to see his reaction to certain things and how he handles things and other people's reactions to him as he exercises his leadership. And this is a pretty cool thing. And um, there's some heavy lessons in here for us too uh, that we're going to look at. But as he tells him to go back, you know, and he's a sharp guy, he's a, he's a warrior. 
Don't ever forget this. King David's a warrior. He knows how to go to battle. He knows how to set things up. He knows how to win. He knows what to do when situations come into a certain place to where he needs to make decisions and he's shrewd. But he's shrewd on a, on a wise side, not on the, you know, just trying to rip somebody off. He knows how to establish, you know, um, battle lines. And he knows how to win. And he's doing it here because he tells um, uh, Zadok and he tells Abiathar, you know what, you guys, why don't you have your boys hang out and could go on back into town, take the ark back in there, hang out, you know, see what's going on. And then when something's happening, send the boys out and tell me what's going on. So he's establishing spies, you know, right in the kingdom, right in the midst of things. So he knows what's going on, even though he's heading out of town. He wants to make sure that he's got everything set up. And so verse 26, let God do to me as seems good to him. So he's turning that all over there. But in verse 31, he says, he asked God to turn Ahithophel's counsel to foolishness. Again, he's establishing another battle line. He's getting God involved that, that Absalom is not going to listen to Ahithophel as he should. And Ahithophel is very wise. And his counsel, as we're going to see at the end of chapter 16, everything that came from that guy was considered like the oracle of God. This guy, when he spoke, everyone just goes, oh, wow, okay, we're doing that, you know. Anyways, we'll get there, maybe. Depends on how much preaching I get into. <clears throat> so then, um, also in verse 32 and 30 through 37 here, towards the end of chapter 15, um, uh, Hushai comes and he, the archite and he's also a friend and he's a servant they call him a servant here but later on he's called a friend and that kind of stuff he sends him back to become a servant and a friend of Absalom again he's setting up the lines and he's establishing things so that as um, you know um, uh, Hushai goes back in there and and uh, kind of gets to be friends, and as he gains things, and he's to thwart the uh, counsel of Ahithophel and that kind of stuff, and kind of start throwing, you know, wrenches in the, you know, workings and in the gears and kind of stuff, get things all messed up, and you know, and that kind of stuff. And uh, then he's to get hooked up with those kids, those spies, those young men, to send them back out so that David knows what's going on. So he's got a network he's establishing as he's leaving the city and fleeing and getting all his stuff together and making haste out of town and everything. And as he's jamming out, he's establishing a network so he knows what's going on as he's going out of town. He knows how to win. He's a warrior and he's establishing this. So then we'll start in verse in chapter 16, looking at verse 1. It says, Then, then uh, when David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mesibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddle donkeys, and on them two hundred loaves of bread, one hundred clusters of raisins, one hundred summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king uh, said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? And so Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And, on, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So uh, the king said to Ziba, Here all belongs to Mesibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, O Lord my king. So 
Uh, David encounters some interesting characters as he's heading out of town, and this is one of them. And then the next guy is real interesting that he, that he encounters. Um, Ziba, in 2 Samuel, verse, in chapter 9, David wanted to do kindness to the house of Saul, so he called Ziba, who was a servant of Saul's, and he asked him, is there any kids or anybody left from that family that we can bless and we can help and take care of? He found out that Jonathan, who was, you know, like a brother to him, had a son, Mesibosheth, and he had got his feet messed up or something when he was real little, and so he couldn't walk, or he couldn't walk very well. And uh, so he, uh, <clears throat> he said that, okay, so why don't you, uh, you know, bring him here? And so they brought Mephibosheth to David. And so David said, I want you to eat at my table, live in my house, you know, just stay with us and that sort of thing. And all the lands that Saul had and everything he gave back to Mephibosheth. And then he had uh, Ziba take care of those lands and that kind of stuff. So as he's heading out of town, here comes um, uh, Ziba, and he's going to kind of, you know, uh, hook up with David. And, and um, so since the king inquired of Meshivosheth, um, Ziba's saying, ah, he stayed in Jerusalem because he wants the kingdom to come back to him. And so he thinks he's going to be king again. And so he's just hanging out there. Now, um, my reaction would be, I don't believe this guy. You know, but then again, I can read ahead, you know, so I kind of know what happens. But, you know, I don't believe it, you know, this guy, you know, but King David, he makes a judgment call here right off the bat. And he says, okay, well, everything, you know, he says, no, he didn't want to come. He thinks he's going to be king. So he says, okay, well, everything he has is yours. Boom, right off the top. And uh, he's, the position that he's in, he can't really give anybody anything. He's not in any position to say, I'm going to make this ruling or that ruling. I'm going to do this, that, or the other thing because he's on the way out. But he says, okay, all he has is yours. And Ziba's like going, oh, thank you. You know, that's pretty awesome. And so he makes this decision here. And even though he's on the run, he's giving things over to Ziba. Well, back if we jumped ahead to chapter 19... Once uh, David arrives back into um, Jerusalem, Mephibosheth comes to talk to him, and he said, and he's like all dirty and thrashed and everything. He hasn't; he's all unkept and stuff. And he says, "Hey, you know, I haven't, you know, taken care of myself or anything since you left, man." He goes, "I was gonna. I asked Ziba to set me up a donkey so I could go with you guys and stuff, and they just all split and left me, and he's deceiving me and stuff like that." And so, <laughs> my first reaction was would be to, okay, well, let's go kill Ziba. Just get rid of him, you know. There's a guy that's going to show up here in a little bit, and his name is Abishai. He's uh, King David's nephew. That's Joab's brother. And you guys all know how Joab is. This guy's his brother. He's just like him, or awful close. Um, and uh, he is... One of these guys that, uh, as you read through here, you can't believe the kind of guy he is. And I have a tendency to kind of fall on the side of Abishai when it comes to making things like this. But King David is, is, a, is maturing. He's a ruler, he's a king, and he's a real king. And he knows how to make proper decisions. 
And so there's not enough evidence to see whether Ziba is ripping him off or with Meshibosheth, did he really not come or go or what's the deal here? You know, it's kind of like he's saying one thing and Ziba's saying another. And how does he really know? We don't even know whether how, what kind of the conversations were they had or anything like that. So he recants his first decision and he says, you know what? I'm going to give you half of what he's got and you take the other half. And he still took care of him. And Mephibosheth's immediate response was, let him have it all, I don't care. Just, I, I just want to hang with you. I, I don't care. Just let him have it all. But the decision stands. Ziba goes on down the road. And uh, to me, I'm just like, going, the guy's obviously a crook. Doesn't David know this? I mean, come on. Can't you see that? He's a crook, man. You know, he's a ripoff. He's a fake. This other guy, he's a good guy, and that's the bad guy. That's how this works, right? There's white hats and black hats and all that stuff. He's a bad guy. But he doesn't do that because he uses, you know, uh, he, he deals with this in a mature way, not in, on his emotions, but why he knows to be true on both sides and how to handle this. <clears throat> and so uh, he uses judgment and mercy and he's showing a real maturity here. Turn over to Psalm 112. In Psalm 112, and I don't believe, I don't, they don't really know if David wrote this or not. It's, um, it's, a, it's a psalm that, that just kind of shows up here, but um, uh, it's in a, a particular group of psalms that talks about majesty and power and, and blessedness and that sort of thing. But in Psalm 112, check this out. It says, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. Excuse me. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house. Excuse me. And his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. But check out verses 4 through 8. Look at how this man is. Look at how the righteous is. Look at how one who deals graciously and with compassion. He uses discretion. He's not shaken. He's not afraid. Steadfast, trusting in the Lord. And it says his heart is established. And this is the position that King David is in right now. He is starting to he is ruling even in exile and on the run as one that's righteous. And he's moving in this way and and um and so he's he his heart is established even in the midst of this exile. And so um as we look at the next uh group of scripture here, we can kind of keep that in mind as as how he deals with the next character that shows up. And uh, this guy is, is a trip. And uh, this is where, you know, I would have to uh, uh, you know, align myself with Abishai on this guy. But King David does not do that. And this is a humbling place. 
for all of us because we need to really pay attention to how he deals with this guy because it's very important. I'm looking at verse 15 in 2 Samuel 16. It says, Now when King David came to Barum, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei. There's two different translations here or pronunciations for this. One is Shimei and one is Shimei. And I'm going to hang with the Shimei part because I don't want you guys saying that I was shimmying up here, the disaster Zeke and all that kind of stuff. Because that's just weird and gross. And so I'm not going to do that. So we'll stick with Shimei and there's no confusion on this, okay? So Shimei, the son of Gera, who's coming, who's, he was coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came and he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said, Thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom your son. So now you're caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you sons of Zariah? He's talking now to Joab and them both now. He's like, going, you guys need to settle down. Just take it easy, please. And so he goes, just take it easy. He goes, so let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. And may be that the Lord will look on my affliction, that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went, threw stones at him, kicking up dust. Now the king and all the people who were with him, because... Um, uh, were weary, so they refreshed themselves there. And like I said, you know, if I had been there, I probably would have sided along with Abishai. Because this guy, Abishai, um, it's, uh, it's ta he's talked about in Second Samuel chapter 23 as one of the, there's like, David has a list of mighty men. There's the top three. Abishai didn't make the top three. Because one of the guys in the top three killed 1,800 men by himself. Abishai, he only killed 300 with a spear. So he didn't make the top three. But could you imagine bonking this guy with a rock? You know? And, and, and so he asked permission to go up there and take care of business. You know, and, and he wants to take this guy out. And David's like going, no. Now, in this kind of a situation and in this kind of a world in the in the time and the culture and everything else um, for something like this to happen when you could go into the king's presence and you were just had a sad face they would kill you and nobody would even question it for a guy to be running alongside uh, king david his family and everything else and throwing rocks and dirt and cussing at him and stuff like that the guy couldn't wouldn't last five minutes there's no way that this would happen but this is, again, we begin to see something here that needs to, we need to get it in our hearts and in our heads how he reacts to this and why he does what he does. 
Shimei is a, is a Benjamite. He's from the clan of Saul. And he's obviously devoted to him. Now, I don't exactly understand his actions because uh, Absalom, King David's son, uh, who is of the tribe of Judah, is going to be king if this whole thing goes south. So Shimei has nothing to gain from this whatsoever. Um, but he just has got a thing going on in his head and he just wants to get it out, I guess. Unfortunately, he gets dealt with by King Solomon in First Kings chapter 2 which we won't have to worry about that until we get there, you know, at some late date. But anyways, um, so uh, <clears throat> and so anyways, um, oh, there I'm caught up now. So David tells these guys to leave him alone and to let him go ahead and curse because he says maybe his cursing is from God. You know, he says, my own son's trying to kill me. This guy has more against him than my own son, against me than my own son does. So go ahead and let him curse. Let him yell. He's got more reason to do it than anybody else. So just let him alone. And then he says something that's really a trip. He says, you know, for the Lord has told him to do it. So he actually thinks that this is coming from God. And he's telling these guys, just leave him alone because God is the one that's cussing me out for whatever is going on. Just leave him alone. And then he says that, that um, you know, maybe the Lord will see that I'm being wronged and he's going to bless me because of it or whatever. And this really brings something home to roost for us because it says that this is talking about loving your enemies and letting God take vengeance. You know, and not for us to, to just keep on doing what we need to do. To take it out of our own hands and give it over to Him. How many times have you had rocks thrown at you and insults and dirt thrown on you? How many times have you had that? And how many times have you successfully given that over to God and allowed Him to take it and walked away? No response. Nothing. I remember I did a um, I did um, junior high class here at church years and years ago. There was a young lady in there, and we were doing that turn the other cheek thing. And she said, "I don't think so. Somebody's going to come up and they're going to try to do something to me. They're getting it back twice. I'm not putting up with that. Mm-mm. No way. I'm not." We went round and round and round for quite a while on this. I never won her over. She's a lovely young lady now. She has a nice family and everything here. And so, you know, I'm not going to finger her or anything, of course. But I don't know if I'd try to, you know, get in her face now either. But um, still, um, uh, our natural <laughs> instinct is to react when someone comes at us. And if they're going to get in my face then I'm going to react now. I can pray through it. I can rise above it. I can move beyond it. I can put it aside and I can put that away. But this is different. This guy's throwing rocks at everybody. He's throwing rocks at the mighty man. He's throwing rocks at his family. He's cursing and cussing them out. What about my family? What am I going to do if someone attacks my family. Maybe it's my fault. Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe I've really messed something up. 
Does anybody have a right to talk to my family like that, to throw rocks at them? How am I going to react? Am I going to get angry? Am I going to go after them? Am I going to attack? That would be my natural reaction. Yeah, I'm going to do that. That dirty dog, I'm going to take his head off. King David said, no. No, you're not going to touch him. And you know what's really interesting about this? He says, no. And what do they do? They let him alone. Because the king said, no, you won't. These guys have been in battle with him before. They knew when he said, no, you didn't do it. You didn't go there. You didn't push it. Because if the king told you no, the king will take you out. And he could take on any of these guys. These guys were maniacs. But every one of them said, that guy just hit me with a rock. Yeah, I know. I'm going to go kill him. No, you can't because David said, leave him alone. The king said, leave him alone. You can't touch him. No. He's, he's safe. Yeah, but maybe after we, he gets down the road a little bit, maybe I'll hang back. No, you're not going to hang back. We're going ahead. Maybe I'll just take off an ear. No, you can't. Abishai was the guy that went with David and snuck into Saul's camp. And they snuck over and Saul was asleep. Remember that? And he's laying there and Abishai goes, can I pin him to the ground? I only need to do it once. I don't have to do it again twice. He's done. He's like, no, no, you can't. He goes, oh, come on. No, you can't. Come on, let's go. So they stole his water bottle and split and went back over and made fun of him from across the creek. You know, but uh, anyways, um, Abishai was one of these guys who, you know, kill them all and let God sort them out. That was his mentality. That's the way he was. And King David had control of this man. This guy had seen things that would make all of us run, you know, faint away. And he had done things that would make us faint away. But when the king said, no, you will not do this. See, we have to come to a point where we begin to understand that God's grace and his mercy is real. And it has to be exercised in our life the same as it was here. And the, and the cool thing about this is, is that it's not just talk. We don't just talk about doing these things. They become a reality. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I have to believe that and I have to walk in it. I don't want that. If I've been harmed, I want to get it back. And he's saying, no. Lend to people as if, you know, you're not going to get it back. In fact... Let's go to uh, Luke chapter 6. Looking at verse 27. One thing we have to understand here is that when, when uh, the kingdom was given over to David and it was taken away from Saul, um, the, uh, the God, Samuel told, you know, God told Samuel that I'm going to place the kingdom in the hands of a man after my own heart. In Acts 13, 22, Paul reiterates this and says that King David is indeed a man after God's own heart. And if he's a man after God's own heart and all things are made through him and without him nothing was made, that heart is Christ. And so he begins to move and react the same that Jesus would. And so as we look at this, look at how he puts this. He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, 
Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those... Excuse me. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Wow. That's really cool, man. That's really good scripture for like Sunday school or like a BBS. That's really cool. You know, tell the kids that stuff, you know, but don't bother me with it because it's impossible to live that way. Who can do that? King David did it and we see proof of it. He was in exile as a king. And he exercised all that right there to this guy who was throwing rocks at him and his family and all of his boys. And he said, let him alone. Just let him alone. Don't do nothing. Just let it go. And and, and this guy, who knows? Maybe other guys would join him and start doing it and that sort of thing too. Who knows where this sort of thing would have went? The decision would have been the same. And he had control of the situation. And that's what blows me away. Because he had complete control. Because he was the king. And everybody was listening to him and doing what he said. Because he had established his heart. And he was walking with God. And he was moving. And people were understanding that and following him. And holding on to that because he was the king. That's effective leadership. First and foremost, it's Christ. And establishing your heart with Him, that's where leadership begins. And and so as He began to exercise this, we actually get to see a place where this was effective and it works. Because we can always say, that don't work, that's ridiculous, nobody can do that. How can you do that? Somebody gets in my face, I'm, you know, taking the Abishai road, you know. Get out of here. God's saying, no, you're going to do what I tell you to do. You're going to mellow out, you know, and you're going to pay attention to me because as we see, you know, and as he moves back in and, and those kinds of things, the less and less the bloodshed that happens, the better it is. Oh, they have to go to battle. They do. And he has to group his guys and he has to put guys over. And Abishai is a captain of a whole group of men and he goes after them, then that's what he's for, and that's what his job is. But he was in control, and he didn't get to just kill willy-nilly the way he wanted to just because he felt like it. He was under control, and the king had control. And this is important for us to realize that when we have this kind of a mentality in Christ, we have control. Because if I go out on my own and I start, you know 
doing the thing where I'm taking off heads and that kind of stuff. I'm out of control. And it's going to come back on me again. But if I can let things go, that means I am in control. And if I can put things aside and I can step back and I can walk away, then I have the ability then to hang on to what's you know, right and true and proper. I have control of where I'm at and my own emotions. And they don't dictate my life. Christ does. Because there's nothing more important than Him. And I can even effectively take care of my family in that because I can show them that Christ is the foundation from where everything moves from. And in that, then I can deal. And yeah, I, I, I might, you know, can handle people throwing rocks at me, but what can I do about my family? It's the same place. And He exercises it here. And He has control. And in this, His control was... They, that guy just bonked me with a rock, man. I'm taking him out. No, you won't. You will leave him alone. He's cussing me. Leave him alone. And you can do the same with your own. As they begin to be attacked and put down upon and stuff, you have control over them to say, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. You're not going to react in that way. You're not going to behave that way. You're going to stay in control because you're going to stand in Christ. And this is where the Father truly steps up and begins to to you know, take care of his family in this way. This is when a good, effective leader becomes to really gain control and take care of business. It's a foundation in Christ, which is the true leadership. That's where it comes from and where it starts and where it belongs. That's where when men were called up to be the leaders of our family, man, if we're not established in Christ, we're dust. We're run over. We're beat up. There's no way we're going to hang and so, as we see how then King David reacts and deals with these things, um, we have a full-on uh, example that this works, and it's real, and it is in the most adverse situation you can imagine, and he still deals with it, and he still takes care of business. <clears throat> So then, yep, 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 I got through all that, alright, moving right along here. So then, verse 15, in uh, 2 Samuel 16, Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, you come into town, there's no bloodshed, there's no battle, there's no fighting. They just walk in. <clears throat> and Ahithophel is with him. And so it was when Hushai, the uh, archite, David's friend, came to Absalom that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And so Absalom says to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why do you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, but whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be, and with him I will remain. Furthermore, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son, as I have served in your father's presence? So will I be in your presence. And Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give advice as to what we should do. And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. 
then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the top of the house, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. So, Absalom enters into Jerusalem, and like we said, everything was cool. There's no fighting, no destruction. Ahithophel is there. Hushai, he's got the spy. He's the spy. He shows up. He vows his allegiance and that sort of thing. And he's quizzed a little bit by Absalom. A little bit. It's like going, what's up with you? Aren't you my dad's friend? But he doesn't pursue it much. I'm surprised Ahithophel didn't, you know, kind of get involved in this, but he didn't. God's obviously got his hand on this. And so Absalom accepts his reasoning and stuff. He likes that long live the king trip, I guess. You know, he's like, yeah, we'll keep this guy around. He likes me, you know, he, he makes me feel good. So I'm going to keep him around. And, you know, this is, this is where we see a real David's wisdom and maturity and his leadership abilities and stuff versus Absalom's. Because, unfortunately, leaders like Absalom, they come and go very fast. There's those guys that wound up getting assassinated in a few months because they listen to guys that have agendas instead of having any kind of a real solid wisdom or a base in which you know to move from and so um he's just kind of asking guys hey what do you think what do i need to do what's going on you know he's just running with this whole scenario and it's going to fall it's going to you know come all apart and everything and i i just he was estranged from his dad and and i think he built upon a power and kind of got on a trip that you know that elevated and he elevated himself up here he just didn't understand what a warrior his dad really was because his dad spent years and years and years running through the forest he spent years in battle and he was one that knew how to win and he knew that he was pretty good, pretty sure he was going to be coming back. God never really came and told him, hey, you're out and your son's in. And, you know, he, he knew that God gave him the kingdom. And that at some point, if God didn't want him there, he would have told him, you're out. But he had never done that. And obviously it wasn't going to come. And it hadn't happened yet. And so he was pretty sure he was coming back. He said, hey, whatever God wants to do, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm good with that. But he was pretty sure that he was coming back. And so Absalom has got kind of on a power trip right now. And he's got a lot of guys interested. But unfortunately, um, these guys are pretty wishy-washy. And he's going to go south here, um, unfortunately. And so um, he asks Ahithophel, what do I need to do? This guy's counsel is like the oracle of God. So what does he say we've got to do? What you've got to do is you've got to have sex with all of your dad's concubines. Didn't question that. He was all for it. He said, yeah, okay, that sounds good to me. You know. So they set up a tent and he does that. And uh, this was... Um, um, prophesied in in second samuel chapter 12 we knew this was coming and the reasoning here it's interesting and and uh, because i i kind of looked up exactly why this is it, in certain translations it says that this was a great insult to david to do this but it goes even beyond that 
this act was a, is considered like treason. This made it so that there could never be any reconciliation between David the king and Absalom. This, there, it was over. There was no, if you did that kind of an act in something so heinous in front of everybody, you know, up in a tent in front of the whole city or the whole nation to do something like that, man, that that was treasonous, that you were the king now, you were taken over. There could be no reconciliation whatsoever in this. It could never be fixed. And so for him to do it, and Abishai, Ahithophel knew this, and he knew that this, was, this would solidify Absalom in his position, and he knew that. Unfortunately, Absalom just didn't understand, you know, the great length that uh, Ahithophel's agenda really was and where he was going with this. But it, uh, and it would also possibly give some um, courage to Absalom's followers and that sort of thing too. So, um, and like we said, um, you know, Absalom was or was all for it. He thought it was a really good idea, so he went for it. And uh, it was prophesied to David, so he even knew that this was coming. It wasn't like it was going to be a big surprise to him. He knew this was going to happen. <coughs> So here we see the wisdom of a king, the maturity of a king, one who had come through a season that of complete degradation to a, a place where he is again a formidable leader, a king and, and, and one that shows and exercises so much maturity and shows mercy and grace. He, he comes to a place where he really you know, now exercises, you know, he's come through, uh, you know, seasons or whatever and has now established himself into a position to where now he exercises and moves as a king that he really is and the effective leader that he is. It's almost like he's returned. Yeah, he's in exile and his family is still messy and there's all kinds of goofy things going on and he's still going to have problems later on. But... It's like he's almost like he's back now after being in this whole position, in this whole place. It's now, this has actually booted him out, moved him around, and now he's actually building it back up and he's coming back into the city in a triumph now because now he's being reestablished and God's bringing everything back. And so the question then comes up for us is how are we going to react are we going to react with the same kind of godly wisdom am i going to fall into the wisdom and and react as king david did or am i going to be like abishai am i still going to keep on slashing with my sword and trying to take everybody out or am i going to begin to use judgment and mercy and grace as king david did because with the mercy and grace he's got control with the sword it would have could you imagine they were coming into a town and this guy came out of town. He might have been a very popular guy. So say they killed him. Then the town rises up. Then they're going to have to start fighting these guys. And then all of a sudden it's a battle over and over and over again. And things just begin to continue to crumble. He's like going, no, there's no more. There's no needless bloodshed here. That's the way we should look at life. That's the way we should look at adversity. 
is, there, is it necessary to draw blood? And if not, then we need to let it go and let it fall by the wayside. Not allow our emotions to dictate our lives. And not allow sin to put us in a position to where we're having to lash out all the time. Because it's folly. And we can see it so clearly with Absalom. And we can see it so clearly with David here. And so our lesson is is to to take Luke chapter 6. Take those scriptures and really begin to pray over them. It's not going to be easy. Nobody wants that. And nobody wants to get attacked. And nobody wants somebody throwing rocks at their family. Nobody wants that stuff. But we want to be founded in Christ. You know, I, <laughs> Pastor Zeke, uh, I told him the other day that uh, I didn't... Uh, the, 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 we had that movie, The Passion of the Christ, here on Friday. And I, I told him, you know, I... I swore that when I first saw that I never would see that movie again. And I told him, I told, I, I still believe that. I never want to see that movie ever again. And he was making fun of me. And he goes, what did it do, make you cry? And I'm going, almost, you know. It's horrible, you know. It is horrible to see that. To, to you know, to experience that and, and to to realize that it was probably much worse. But, man, to, to know that he would do that for me. That he would die for me that way. That he would just, you know, give it all up and, and live this. Be praying for those guys that did these things. You wanted lightning to come down and strike those religious leaders. I had one friend who said, man, I just want to punch a Roman. You know, it's like, Ugh. But... The point is, is that it was pure 100% love no matter what was going on. And that's the position we have to be in. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, and we've got a million of them. But the bottom line is, is that we have now an example in the word 100% way before Jesus' time of a man exercising it because he was a man after God's own heart and he truly lived and loved it. And we have no excuse. None. We've got to pray and be in God's will in however manner that we need to deal with life. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we just... um, We just want to give our lives over to You over and over, Father. We want to give our emotions over to You. We want to be in a place where we can exercise judgment and, and um, mercy and grace and, and to always fall on the side in this example as King David was, Father, as your son did. He gave it all and, and was just, just poured himself out completely, 100%, Lord. And, and we want to be in that. We want to maintain control in all aspects of our life, Father. We want to have you to have control. We want to walk and move in that so that we're not lopping off heads, but we're just trusting you for where we're going to end up at. Father, there's going to be rocks and dirt and insults hurled at us and our families. Lord, we want to be in that place of trusting you and to know that you're going to take care of us and you're going to take care of those things. Lord, we just want to honor and glorify you 
We praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you guys will all stand.